Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 82. I hope that everyone had a great 4th of July holiday weekend. I'm not sure about all of you, but man, Monday was just a struggle. Too much time out of the office, lots of time watching fireworks, eating hot dogs, drinking beer, having fun with friends, and of course, playing some golf. But I'm back, back to more editing, more recording, and that means more episodes. So I teased it a little bit last week. Uh, We're going to launch some new things this summer. I don't know if I'm going to see a whole lot of a golf course for a little while, but that's okay. We're going to try and get some new content out very soon. So you know the drill. Keep following on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram at the Back of the Range Podcast. If you have not shared the podcast with a friend, go ahead and do that. That would mean the world to me. A few other things. You know, we have merch. We just got another shipment of towels. We have trucker hats, even though my good friend Harvey scored a dozen of them. So thank you to Harvey for doing that. So go onto the website, thebackoftherange.com, grab some trucker hats, grab towels. We have ball markers now, tees, whatever you need, I will send it to you. And finally, keep leaving reviews. Seriously, it's going to be a long, long haul this summer. You're going to get a lot of amazing episodes. Let me know what you think. They mean the world to me, so please keep leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts. If you want to shoot me a message, do so at ben at thebackoftherange.com. The mojo is real. It continues for Colin Morikawa, who is our guest on episode 62. He tied for second at the 3M Open. Hovland wrapped up a T13 as well. Both of those guys, along with Matthew Wolf, who picked up the win, it looks like they're going to be on the PGA Tour next year. And by the way, the mojo isn't just for people on tour. Clint Brown, he's a friend of the pod. He's the director of communications at the Iowa Golf Association. Since he grabbed one of our trucker hats and a ball marker, well, he just dropped two shots off his handicap. So if you're listening to the podcast, the mojo's for everyone. So if you won a club championship or you broke 80 for the first time, or even if you made a hole in one, let us know. Tag us on Instagram, the back of the range podcast. All right, so this is a little bit of a different episode, but I think you're really going to enjoy it because most of the popular episodes here at the back of the range have been once focused on the amateur game. You know, we featured collegiate players like Brandon Wu and Isaiah Salinda from Stanford, senior amateurs like Mike McCoy and Gene Elliott, and of course, you know we love getting mid-ams here like Stuart Hagestad, Scott Harvey, and Matt Parziali. Focusing on the amateur game is something that we will always do here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. So our guest this week took his passion for amateur golf and launched his own company called AmateurGolf.com nearly 20 years ago. Pete Lukowski has always been the guy that seemed to know everything about amateur tournaments. Who was playing, who shot what, where the qualifiers were, you name it, he knew it. Well, he turned his passion for amateur golf into a business. AmateurGolf.com provides content that is geared towards players who are serious about taking their game to a competitive level. They provide the world's most comprehensive golf tournament database. So wherever you live in the United States, if you're looking to put together a summer schedule, you've probably visited this site already. They also run their own tournaments. They have great articles about the amateur game as well. So I thought, you know, if you're enjoying this podcast and how we feature amateurs, it might be interesting to get to know the founder of AmateurGolf.com. might be interesting to know how the company got started 
and his thoughts on the health of the amateur game. Before we get to the interview with Pete, keep the following code in mind, B-O-T-R. Of course, that stands for back of the range. You're going to learn very quickly where you're going to be able to use it. So let's get started with this week's episode. Pete, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great this morning out here in Carlsbad, California. Oh, don't rub that in that you're in Cal. Well, I'm in South Florida, so I don't make friends either. So we're 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 gonna anger all the people in the flyover states that uh, that don't get the the nice Florida and California weather all year long. Um, let's further, you know, grow the reputation that maybe you're just uh, playing golf every single day and don't work or anything. What when's the last round of golf you played, Pete? Oh gosh, uh, yesterday. Yeah, we, we play at amateurgolf.com. We all play golf. We, one of our mottos early on was touch a club every day. Okay. I believe it, you know, if you're going to be involved in the business of golf, you should play golf. I mean, who better to set an example, right? Of course. So in your office, I'm guessing there's all sorts of training aids. There's gotta be a, is there a putting mat? Is there an electronic putting mat there? What, what's described the, the, home offices of amateur amateurgolf.com what do you have around you in your office i got rid of the putting green um, okay taking up half the office but um i've got some nice office furniture it's a converted garage and then you know the typical staff bags that are standing around with a lot of clubs in them and um, i just did an ebay purge and got rid of some <laughs> of the stuff that was just not going to be played anymore but I, i'm not that different from any other golfer i just right. maybe get a few more a few more freebies because we have, you know, some really good sponsors, titles in Callaway and Ping. And you know, so when we visit their facilities and get fitted and get, you know, do, do some video work, we are lucky enough to usually leave with something. But for the most part, I'm no, not not that different from any other hardcore golfer. I just had, I wind up with a lot of equipment and once in a while, you've just got to purge it and get it, get it gone. I can't get rid of putters though. No. I have so many putters. Yeah. I, uh, I was always wondering, or I was always expecting like, on one of those episodes of hoarders, um, instead of just showing the real disastrous uh, situations, go find the typical golfer and see what you can get out of that guy's garage with all the, you know, random wedges and putters and drivers and stuff. So I'm glad. That'd be fabulous. Let's do it. I'm telling I mean, that's, that sounds like a a special episode for amateurgolf.com. You know, I'm, I'm helping you out here. Um, but uh, all right, so let's let's not let you off the hook. Everyone that comes on this on uh, that's a guest here at the back of the range. It's a rite of passage. Doesn't matter if you're a PGA Tour player or an amateur champion or even a commentator. You got to tell everyone how you got into the game of golf. So how did this start for you? Yeah, and it's easy for me. I um, my parents had a choice of two houses to build, and my dad was a principal of an elementary school, and he wanted to do it himself, and. One of the houses was on a hill, had great views, and the other was just almost on the fairway of a little public nine-hole golf course. And I'm glad he chose that one because it was just a no-brainer to go out. And, you know, we started by going out and just um, grabbing balls in a club, and and pretty soon it it became something that all the kids that lived around there did. And so a super easy decision for me. I I took to it and and quit baseball at about 12 years old, and it was uh, no turning back from there. So you just became an absolute golf nut and – led you to to Middlebury College. I mean, you were the captain of the golf team at Middlebury College. Uh, what was your college golf experience like? It was pretty casual. I mean, what I learned when I went to Middlebury, which is a nice small liberal arts school, is 
you know, it doesn't matter if you're at San Diego State or Arizona State or a party school reputation. Uh, small schools do it too, and oh, you know, yeah. basically, a college college golf at Middlebury College involved. If you could break eighty, you're on the team. Okay. And uh, since that was pretty easy for me, I didn't practice very much, and I would, uh, you know, sometimes I'd be hung over at a golf match. But um, no. I had the running joke was I was I was state champion of Vermont, but there were only four colleges that had a, a golf team. <laughs> yeah, but don't confuse people with details, Pete. I mean, you're you're a state champion, so I mean, just put that exactly. On the, I mean, there you go. Yeah, you have your your college career. You play at Millbury, and still, whether you're a golf nut or not, to make the jump to get to the point where you launch your own, you know, how do you describe amateurgolf.com? Is it a golf media? Is it a golf? Is it a resource? Is it you know? It's so many different things. I'll let you describe what amateurgolf.com is. Yeah, that, and I appreciate you doing that because when we started, we actually thought we were, you know, we did Golf Week and the golf magazines and, and things. I mean, it was barely, Golf Channel was pretty new. We thought that we would probably end up having a publication at some point. Okay. point. And um, thankfully, we didn't do that because as things changed, and, you know, Facebook's an example where, you know, we're there and launching a site in 2000 and you know, Facebook didn't launch for years from then. Right. And we were just fortunate that we got people to the site virtually. And, I, and I've told people, if you ever start a business and you're lucky enough to have a domain name like ours, which obviously has the words amateur and golf in it. So it implies, you know, maybe there's something about those things. And uh, we, we very much from the beginning, since Google became the dominant search engine, we did very well in the search results and we didn't have to pay a lot for that. So the more we covered, the more we got and the less we worried about having a publication and the more we could worry about what is amateur golf. So it's a toolkit where you get, news schedules rankings results all those things in one place if we had started the business today we'd probably just build an app but because right. we started it years ago it's it's a website and we made it a mobile website so you can use it on a cell phone but we really don't worry about having an app because we feel like people's screens are so clogged as it is with so many apps that we don't get lost in there when you i'm always fascinated how things get started when you started this did you even feel remotely qualified to do anything like this and take it on? Or was it just a passion that you just couldn't ignore and you just wanted to somehow get into amateur golf? Like when did your passion for amateur golf start? Yeah, I always had the passion. So um, I used to be the guy that listened on the range when people talked about a tournament. And I can remember years ago on the East Coast in the summertime, people were talking about the Porter Cup. And they were asking each other if they were getting an invitation. And these were Division One golfers that were returning home to Connecticut to play golf in the summer. I knew I wasn't getting an invitation to the Porter Cup, whatever it was. Right. But I also knew I wanted to know what the Porter Cup was. And it turns out it's this historic event, Niagara Falls Country Club. And it's, you know, they get a gallery on the last day. And this is pure amateur golf. And I became intrigued. And I started following players like, at that time, I remember Scott Verplank. He was the guy. And, you know, might have been Brad Faxon from the East Coast and others that are in my age bracket, which is, you know, over 50. Let's just say that. <laughs> okay. We, okay. <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah. It's okay. Champion, champions tour material. But, you, you know, you it, it, really, uh, it really was my passion, you know, and, and I didn't know if I was qualified. Didn't really feel I was qualified to run a business. The only thing I needed to worry about, though, is since I'm, I have a sales background, I figured I could attract revenue to any quality set of tools for amateur golf and that's what i really focused on was the revenue aspect so you launch it nearly 20 years ago and you know 2001 bubba dickerson wins the u.s am at east lake and by the way that is not the first bubba dickerson reference in the history of the back of the range but um, <laughs> and, 
And then 2019, you got Hovland winning it, uh, you know, at Pebble Beach. You have great coverage and interviews with Hovland and Bling and, and Cole Hammer and, and Celinda and Haggison. You can go down the list of all these great amateurs that were there at Pebble Beach. You're a well-known entity now. They know you when you're coming up. But I want to ask you when it first started. Like, what was the first major amateur event that you just maybe pitched a 10 at and just said, okay, here we are. We're amateurgolf.com. Let's let's see what kind of access we can get. Were you even accepted when you got into it? Yeah, and, and that's impressive that you are, are kind of imagining how it might have started because I didn't tell you this. I didn't give you this question, and it's it's pretty cool because that's exactly how it started. We basically pitched a tent at the San Francisco City Championship, oh, God. You know, and they had <laughs> something something like a 1,000 players spread across 10 to 20 different flights. It was, there's a flight for everybody in match play in okay. San Francisco. And it's like, they call it the oldest match play tournament uh, west of the Mississippi. But bottom line was they had various attempts at a website. Nobody really did a very good job keeping the website current so they could make a website, but they couldn't keep the website up to date. So I determined that if we could keep it up to date and literally we would take pictures or write down the scoreboard and then turn it into a spreadsheet and turn it into a website oh so that God. people could go on and figure out who they were playing next. <laughs> and uh, that brought us up hundreds and hundreds of people to the site and word of mouth. And, and, and the tournament was happy to have us involved. And years later, they actually, they actually pay us a little bit to do that. So it's cool. That's awesome. So this literally just started as I'm just thinking about spreadsheets and, and I, my immediate thought was, you know, obviously everything is social media now and Instagram and live streaming. I'm just thinking like you're trying to build this around the time of like MySpace and when AOL was still giving out DVD ROMs with like 10,000 free hours, you're trying to capture this massive, massive undertaking at a time when technology just is not your friend. That's right. And, you know, there were um, associations like the NCGA, the Northern Cal Golf Association, uh -huh. or, yeah. you know, the Carolinas Golf Associations. They really couldn't worry about independent city championships. It was all they could do to cover their own state amateurs. And for years, some of them didn't even have websites. You know, the USGA's website, you certainly wouldn't, certainly wouldn't be able to register online like you can today. You would right. download a PDF at best. So, you know, we really felt that we were offering something by basically compiling all that data into one place. And when you asked about the, the beginnings and what I knew about it, well, the USGA used to publish a directory of amateur golf, and it was like a phone book you could order. But nobody knew it was available. They just published it. Okay. But we would, we would grab that every year, and we would actually rekey all that data into the, into the website. And, of course, those were schedules, and those were very valuable. And over the years now, I think the reason people join and actually pay us money to join a membership on our site and it's, you know, it's $49 a year. It's very reasonable, but the reason they do it, I think it's because of those schedules. We are the best for those. And then the rankings, the news, the results, well, that's just a bonus because you can get all that coverage. Yeah. Before I get into the different uh, arms, so to speak, of amateurgolf.com and the different things that you do, I want you to, to mention something that you're actually doing for listeners of the podcast. I want to kind of get it up there in front. Obviously, this information is going to be in the show notes of the episode, but you're doing something very cool for, for listeners. I have a lot of listeners that love amateur golf. They love junior golf. They love collegiate golf. So, uh, what are you doing for the listeners so they can kind of get acclimated and learn more about amateurgolf.com? Sure. Yeah. Cause one of the things that can get a little frustrating about our site, it's like the New York times, some other sites that have a paywall, which basically means when you get to a certain point, you've either read enough articles or you're in our database and you're really digging for information on 
Victor Hovland's past or whatever, you get to the point where you're going to get asked to join the site. I want to give all the listeners a code so you can try it for 90 days. Anybody that's listening to this that finds it remotely interesting and you don't have to put a credit card number down. So there's not going to be any recurring billing. And just um, when you sign up, you hit the login button on our homepage and or create join now. And then there'll be a place to put in an offer code. And the offer code is simple. It's going to be all caps, four letters, B-O-T-R, which is back of the range. Nice. Well, I appreciate you doing that for our listeners. I, I know they're all going to kind of jump in and, and at least dig around there for 90 days and see what they can learn. And, and hey, I, I think a lot of them will, will subscribe. So uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you're not just schedules, you're not just reporting results, but you have your hand in running a few tournaments under the banner of AmateurGolf.com. So I don't know when the first one was, but I have a guess that it was at Bandon Dunes. Um, is that correct? Or when, when did this whole thing start of actually hosting tournament? You're really close there too. That was our first tournament where we had anybody from out of state or okay. out of the country, which we had young know, England and Canada come in there because I fell in love with band and doings earlier. And that that's a whole nother podcast, uh, but I, you know, we could go into great detail about Mike Kaiser and band and you haven't had him on yet. She's that he'd be a great one to, to get on. But, I, uh, I had, uh, I had Ben Cowan Dewar, who is his partner that kind of helped out with Cabot. So, but, uh, but yeah, Ben, uh, Mike Kaiser. Yeah. That's definitely on the, on the wish list. Pretty good. Yeah. He's, he's a very nice man and he, he, he does it for all the right reasons, which is, you know, it's so obvious when you go there, but we started a tournament there, probably our third tournament. Our very first was at a, a complex in California that uh, insiders will be familiar with called Bayonet Black Horse. There's 36 holes Absolutely. there, former military course. And you, they've had a uh, national club pro championship uh, there. They've had various uh, uh, other uh, tournaments there. And we approached them about doing some advertising. It was It's pretty interesting how businesses get steered in certain directions. And uh, the, the pro there... He said, well, if you have all these amateur golfers that you talk about on your website and you know you, you can motivate them through an email list, well, why don't you go ahead and run a tournament here? And I had never even considered tournaments as an option. And then he took a piece of paper, and I wish I could show you a guy folding up a piece of paper and handing it to me. And on the back of the paper, it said $39, and that was the green fee he was going to charge me. And the, oh, the wow. course was going for close to $100 green fee then. Yeah. And the, the reason he wanted to do it was because on Memorial Day weekend, they're kind of slow. People in that area do other things. And I think this, it's not typically a huge golf weekend, you know, as other holidays are. And we brought 112 players. We did split tees. We had, you know, a regular amateur tournament there yeah. and a champion. And it was, it was absolutely awesome. And we actually made a profit on it. So that was my very first profitable endeavor ever I ever did in my own business. It's kind of cool. <laughs> what, um, you, you've been, and you've done tournaments. Uh, I love that. Uh, so you've done tournaments at, you know, Bandon, you, you have your Monterey four ball, you do things in San Diego. Um, you know, you have your Silicon Valley amateur, you have all these different events. I guess one thing I want to ask is, can you maybe, I'm sure you have tons of examples of this, but can you think of someone that you've gotten to know through the site that maybe they, you know, they like to follow golf, but they're, they're not really competitive players and you, you finally get them to play in a tournament and now they're just a degenerate addict to competition. Do you have maybe an example of, you know, for someone out there that's maybe not sure if tournaments are right for them, you got to give me a story about someone that now is just a diehard. Uh, and it's, these are, these are such great questions. I appreciate it because this guy, Peter Israel, I mean, he comes right to mind. We used to have a small net division in our tournaments and that okay. would allow a guy or a guy or a gal. And by the way, any women listening, we love women's amateur golf. 
and we have um, one of our staff, Julie Williams, is fully dedicated. And she does a lot of men's stuff, but she's fully dedicated to covering the women's game. And so any of our tournaments, even if it looks like it's an all-men's tournament, there is a women's division. And if we get three women, we provide a trophy. We, we care about women. There you go. So one of the first first tournaments that we had, and, and Peter Israel played in the net division. He was a nine handicap. And two or three years later, he kept playing in the net division. And then he said, I want to start playing in your gross division. And he came, became about a four or five. And then I was pulling up the results another year later of the California amateur qualifying. It's really hard to get into the California amateur. Sure. And Peter Israel shot 68. Oh, wow. So that's okay. just got to be so, like, you, you feel like you're a proud dad watching this because this is one of your guys that came up through the ranks, so to speak, of of amateurgolf.com. It's like, you know, almost like a farm system. This kid gets, you know, gets called up to the majors. That's right. And I feel like whatever it was that day, you know, and all that tournament experience, and I've always believed this going back to before we had a website was if you want to win your club championship, then you should go out and challenge yourself and play and try to qualify for whatever you can, the state am, even the USM, you may get embarrassed. You might get a letter from the USGA and I've been lucky. I've never gotten one, but if you shoot like 90 or something, you do. And, um, yeah, my, mine's framed Pete. Yeah. Mine's framed. I got it above my, <laughs> um, no. I want to see it. I, no, I want to tell you what. No, I haven't yeah. got, I haven't got one of those letters yet. So, um, but we all know they're out there, right? So they try to get around a person just using their tournaments to get on a private club. And we know there's players that do that. They see the Valley club in Montecito, which is a McKenzie design that qualifier fills so fast. If you don't do it the day it comes out, you're not going to get in, but getting back to Peter Israel or getting back to anybody that wants to improve. Yeah. If you even think that you're going to try to win a local tournament and, you know, and I think the club championship's a good example. And then you come back and play in that club championship after having played three or four other bigger tournaments at other courses. I, I just feel like you've got a better chance to compete uh, against the, your peers when you've played more tournament golf than they have. Oh yeah. You have to put yourself out there. It really doesn't matter what kind of swing you have, how far you hit it. If you can't do it under, under, you know, the tournament conditions, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Um, I want to ask you a couple. Okay. So let me ask you this one. How do you convince, I mean, I know you did it cause you, you knew Peter, but let's take the typical 10 handicapper that's at his club or he's at the local muni with his buddies. And, you know, maybe they do play the member member or they'll, they'll do, you know, maybe the only thing they do is a club championship. Are there ways to convince people? And this is just a general question, but are there ways to get people into amateur tournaments on a more regular basis? If they're married or they have a girlfriend, you got to call their spouse. Okay. <laughs> Tell them, you know, get out of the house, right? It, no, ser seriously, uh, I think that it's peers. It's the peer pressure. So this okay. is the key. If there's three tournament players and they have a friend, I think we all need to bring somebody in. So um, typically what's happened with us is um, we've tried to really encourage people to bring you know, anybody that's on the borderline of wanting to play. And then we handhold them. They may not have a handicap. So we're, we're, we can provide a handicap in all 50 state golf associations and easily on our site. If, yeah. you, if a person wants to do that and you know, I can't urge a person enough get a handicap because if you have one of these online handicaps, it's not really official. It tells you what you, you, you know, you are, but when somebody asks you to play in a member guest, they're going to want a real state association handicap. Yeah piggybacking on that of, of, you know, getting people tournament ready. I love talking about junior golf, love talking about the, um, the transition from a, a high level junior or really any level of junior and how they make the decisions 
of going to college, finding a college program that's right there, right for them. I would imagine you are just really plugged in in not only the local scene, but nationally of the top juniors. Um, is amateurgolf.com a resource for some of these juniors and their parents to get them ready to pick the right college? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we know that there are services out there that can provide you with a lot of data on this stuff. And uh, you can go to their website. and They typically want to charge you something to help you with the recruiting process. We have some writers that um, contribute to our site. Okay. And we'll talk about things like, what are the scoring averages to get into certain colleges? Or you know, do players from the northeast of the country have a disadvantage against players from the southeast in competing for a college scholarship, things like that? Um, a lot of things you wouldn't think about that our writers have contributed to the site that I think you might enjoy. And uh, the other thing is we love following a good story. So when we see a young player come, come up and, uh, you know, come up through junior golf and, and, uh, you know, take it to the next level. We just, we just love that. So it's saying you knew them when is right. a lot of fun. If you really, if you really did know them when, you know, now do you have a kind of similar to the Peter Israel story? Do you have a junior that comes to mind that you just remember, just, you know, coming up the ranks, playing in these little local junior tournaments, and all of a sudden they're they're at a D1 school and they're uh, perhaps, you know, on a short list for, you know, a Walker Cup or, or, a, or an All-American list. That would easily be, for me, Haley Moore, because she's not only participated in our website in terms of using it as a resource when she was a junior. She uh, called me when I was a member of a private club to ask if she could get a a practice round with me and we played golf together. It was a lot of fun to play with her and she, you know, see how she mapped the course out trying to get into the Kia classic on the LPGA tour. And then yeah. as she got into uh, university of Arizona, where my son's actually going next year, okay. she got into university of Arizona on a scholarship early on and she made the winning putt in last year's NCAA championship that they won. So, you know, it was just incredible to see Haley Moore and she, and actually she won two of amateurgolf.com's events back to back in the winter which were pretty much practice events for her, but um, just to see her and get to know her uh, and watch her success. I, she's the one for me to, to really, I'm rooting for her for LPGA and uh, she's, she's won her first pro event. I know um, we were talking about trying to sponsor, but I think one of the equipment companies will probably grab her pretty quickly and she's going to get out of our price range. But, uh, but yeah, Haley Moore is one to watch on the, on the men's side. Um, you know, I just have to jump to Victor Hovland only because I didn't follow him during junior golf. But he was a genuine member of AmateurGolf.com, which I only count when somebody pays to use the website, and uh, and and he did. And, and then I met him at the USAM and interviewed him, and he joked with me uh, that, "Oh, you sent me those e emails, those annoying emails." <laughs> <laughs> he's a good, guy. he's a good guy. Oh Victor's yeah. a great guy, and he's he's going to be an asset to the tour. You know, I just think he's going to be um, just somebody that people enjoy watching because when he wins, it's going to be fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely think he has a, a great future and he's a super guy as well. He's another former guest we've had here, but yeah. Um, all right. So let me ask you a couple questions here. Uh, your major events that you have been able to attend, I know you do a lot of the reporting and perhaps you have, you, I know you have a lot of contributors and, and that's how some, sometimes how the reporting gets done, but you actually go to some of these major events. Tell me about the first U S amateur uh, that you attended with either by yourself or with your team that you felt like you were covering. You were not just there as a fan, but you were there as part of the media that you were covering. 
Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I'm going to be frank with you. I can't remember the first U.S. Amateur I attended covering it, but I can remember going to USAM. I had a friend that qualified, I want to say 98 Pebble Beach, and he hurt his neck so badly on the plane that he couldn't play. Oh, and wow. it, what a disappointment for him. But, you know, going there, the, what I do remember is we launched our company at the U.S. Open in 2000 at Pebble. And it was incredible because we were able to somehow get our vehicle onto the golf course, a logoed vehicle. And we gave out 3000 hats as we tried to get email addresses and get people using the site. So my first memory is tiger U S open getting chastised by the USGA for, you know, giving out all these hats. But <laughs> by the time, by the time they did it, it was too late. We had given away the last hat. So it was kind of um, a fun experience. And then the other one is the Walker cup. And, you know, if, if we we're going to touch on that, my Absolutely. first Walker Cup was 2005 at Chicago Golf Club. Okay. And um, I've been to four or five since then. They're just incredible. You know, just incredible competitions that you can get up close to the players. And I was at the U.S. Open in Pebble Beach this year, and it was a great U.S. Open. It was one of the greatest. However, I just reminded myself how hard it is to watch golf at a pro event of any sort. And, you know, Unless the media center is mostly people watching TV and reporting when right. you get on the course, it's just hard to, hard to get up close. So my suggestion to anybody that loves golf is, you know, take your kids, go out, take your girlfriend, your wife, you know, your buddies and go to a Walker cup, you know, for sure. It's at Royal Liverpool this, this year in, in you know, in England and, and then, uh, any, anytime you can, it's every two years, the Curtis cup on the women's side, you know, these, these tournaments, you can get up so close to the players. The U.S. Women's Am at San Diego Country Club a couple of years ago, there was hardly a gallery. And what a great place to take your daughter to watch that level of golf. So uh, this is where it's at. Amateur golf is where it's at. And I was going to, you know, you kind of just stole my question, which which is that's not helping me, Pete. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you've been to the U.S. Am, you've been to the Walker Cup, and I guess you already made the case. I mean, so it's the accessibility that you have to the players at these amateur events like, you know, Walker Cup, USAM, US Women's AM, even US Mid Am. I know you've been to a lot of them, but can you maybe share a story of you being at one of these events, being so close and it just kind of dawning on you saying, holy, should I even be here? Like, am I, am I really standing in the fairway right now? Like, what's the closest you've been to the point where you're feeling almost like you're intruding? Yeah. And I, I would say for that one, it would be um, the Walker cup. And I think it was 2013 at uh, national golf links of America, where we really were able to, like, I rode a cart with Matthew Fitzpatrick as they were you know, driving out for, you know, to watch their um, final matches that that GB and I team wow. lost to USA. But we had three Cal players in that tournament. So Cal had their record golf team, university of California, Berkeley, and it was their most victories and one of the records for division one golf. And I was sitting by the side with um, three of the Cal players. And as we were sitting there, I just remember, you know, and I don't, I don't know which one I said it to, but I said, um, Palma, it's Michael Kim. And I can't remember the third one. You're, you're better than me. Cause I was coming up trying to come up with one name, but, uh, um, it was, it was, uh, he, he lost in the, on the, uh, final putt of the U S amateur. Uh, and, and it was a, about a three footer and it hit a stone at, uh, I think it was at Cherry Hills and, and just, just moved off to the left. And that would have was a putt well, to I win the U.S. Amateur. I want to say Michael Weaver, Michael Weaver. Weaver. Yeah. I was saying Seaver, but it's Weaver yeah. and, and Michael Weaver, very nice, nice lad. And, and all of them were. And when uh, we sat there and I think I might've said it to him and I said, you know, 
can, would you ever in your wildest golf dreams have imagined you're about to win the Walker cup and you're on this team and just looked at me and said, no way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find the Walker cup super fascinating and I love all team events, whether it's Ryder, president, Solheim, Curtis, it doesn't matter. I just, I mean, I've played five uh, Florida cups down here and yeah, it's, it's just a state amateur uh, Ryder Cup style event, but I that's that's my highlight. Whenever I'm fortunate enough to to participate on that team, I, I'm glad you brought up Walker Cup. How how does Walker Cup get more exposure, and how can more people, I guess, get into the importance of it? Because the people that you're seeing on that team, I mean, you're gonna see them in the pro ranks, and and you have the level of access at at this time in their lives that you're just not gonna get when they turn professional. Yeah. And I, I think it's getting like LA country club was unbelievable. Yeah. There was a huge crowds there. I think they're getting exactly what they want. They want it to be where the crowd can kind of follow the last groups and surround the green as they did when tiger won, when he hadn't won in so long. I mean, in pro golf, that was about the coolest thing that's oh, ever yeah. happened. Right. The yeah. green was surrounded and the security just let it go. But that's what it's like on the last hole of the Walker cup. And I would say, you know, Having attended them abroad, um, the fans over there do attend Walker Cups, and it's pretty incredible. They're a little more commercial. There's more food vendors and things on, on the course, you know, fish and chips and things like that. I would advise anybody that if they want to take a buddy's trip to England or Ireland or Scotland, you could look at the Walker Cup on the calendar for September, even this year, or, you know, the next time it's back in two years. And you, know, you go there. It's only a two-day event. Yeah. So you go to the Walker Cup. And you could be playing golf. You could even play golf on the same days. That would be a great golf vacation. You could do that on your own and play all the great courses. Play during the week and then hang uh, hang for the weekend during the tournament. And, and in two years, it's actually coming down here to my neck of the woods. It's going to be at Seminole, which that's going to be incredible. So it is. Yeah, that's yeah. going to be incredible. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about, I, I, you know, the phrase growing the game can really go into different areas, but I, I, I'm curious, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're there at the, the forefront of, of the trends in amateur golf. Uh, you know, you're a member at Goat Hill Park in Oceanside, which, you know, for people that don't know, this is kind of a reclaim, reclaiming of, of city grounds project by John Ashworth, who, if you know Ashworth clothing, if you know Link Soul clothing, that's, that's the guy. Um, you're also a member at Olympic. So you have maybe the, the local Muni grassroots, and then you have the historic country club, which is probably going to grow the game more, the Muni side or maybe changing the culture of conservative country clubs to maybe get more people included. What do you think is the way to get the game to more people? Well, yeah, I think it's it's the the, um, the former. I mean, I think it's it's the Goat Hill Parks um, okay. Olympic Club is um, it's attainable. It's not the it's not like getting into San Francisco or or whatever. You could get in there, but it's not going to grow the game like public golf can. But public golf is to me the answer. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm sorry not to cut you off, but I was I wasn't targeting Olympic specifically. I was just kind of saying in general, you know, the do we get the country clubs to be more inclusive or do we kind of just go the Muni route and just get, you know, that's kind of where I was going with that. Gotcha. Yeah. And cause I, I do think that um, in all fairness to the country clubs, they're starting to become more relaxed and that's a yeah. start to somebody, you know, let's face it, you have to have some money to be able to join a country club, but there are more a trend toward the club corps and the national memberships where you can actually join and, you know, get other benefits, health clubs and things like that. Um, which I think makes sense for people because a lot nobody would ever question you for joining a health club, 
but it might cost $300 a month and it might only cost 500 to join a health club with a golf club privileges. So it's not so elitist to be in a country club. I think what really is the key is that, um, you know, these courses are trying to become more attractive to families and allow for jeans in the clubhouse and, you know, really do, do things like that. But at Goat Hill, it's a whole nother level. You go up there and you can bring your dog. So I'll just stop at that. Think about that one. You can bring your dog golfing with you. It's awesome. Yeah, well, I've I've seen videos and, and vignettes. Even I've actually played uh, Winter Park, uh, the Winter Park Nine uh, in the Orlando area, which is, I guess you can almost say they're kind of, I mean, the concepts they're almost like sister courses. I know they're not really related, but it's very similar aspect where there's t-shirts and sandals and dogs and beers and just you're carrying your sticks and it's a very very relaxed vibe. And I I say anyone in the California area go to Goat Hill. Anyone in the South Florida area or Central go to uh, go to WP Nine because. It's just a different golf experience. Definitely. And, and that Matt Janella is, you know, I think he's been really a proponent of the Winter Park one. Oh, yeah. He's really good friends with, with Matt Janella. He, I mean, with uh, John Ashworth, he had his wedding at uh, Goat Hill and uh, uh, just just really good friends. And they're, they're doing what they can to promote golf. So I played yesterday you know, with my son. We played um, in about an hour and a half. So, you know, you're 4,400 yards. 18 hole course is going to play shorter, but you have all the shot values that you would have. It's an incredible condition. And uh, when we finished the round, we met a guy and his wife and the wife was at a conference and he had heard about goat Hill through exactly these same ways, word of mouth golf channel. And he was thrilled to be there. He went to the link soul lab and bought some link soul clothes. And um, I kind of could pinpoint him that he was from not from there because you start recognizing the, the regulars up there. Oh yeah, and it's just nice to see that we're getting that up there. And um, you know, every incremental round that somebody plays that wouldn't have been played. I mean, let's face it, this course almost closed down. Oh yeah. So you know that's a round of golf that that gets played in the Bay Area. There's one called Karika Park, which we helped them with some marketing, and that course is amazing. Reese Jones went in, and it's right in Alameda, right near San Francisco. So if people travel to the Bay Area, definitely try to get on Olympic Club. But there's Karika Park, there's Harding Park, another remodel project. Those are at the higher end, uh, you know, where there's city courses that are holding major championships. I mean, yeah. PGA okay. next year's at, at at Harding. Yeah, Harding had a had the had a Presidents Cup. So um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Banadoons. It's such a you know for for guys here on the East Coast, women on the East Coast, basically anyone that's not over there, it's it's a little bit of a trek. I guess, can you maybe share one of the more unique trips you've had out there? I know it's a tournament. It's a two-man links event that you do out there. But um, I, I'm sure not everything has gone 100% to plan. I'm sure weather uh, comes into play. Uh, is there a year that sticks out, maybe fond memories of Bandon Dunes, maybe something that's going to give someone the impetus to say, you know what, um, I, I got to get Bandon Dunes off my bucket list this year? Yeah, I'm going to give you a two-part answer on that one sure. because, they're, they're, first of all, the people and the caddies there make the experience. It's amazing, and I'm talking about the people that work there, and I think that's where Kaiser got it right. Everything is, is just right. It doesn't charge you $20 for a hamburger in there. You know, you go to the tap room at Pebble Beach. You've already paid $525 to play golf, and no offense to Pebble, it's worth it. But, you know, you're going to go pay $25 for a burger. At, at, at Bandon Dunes, everything is right-priced. If you check in there, the range is free uh, all week. You can get as many balls as you want. But the things that have stick out to me are the weather does change a lot. So don't go there if you want an 80 degrees every day. And where, you know, I've I've never worn shorts at Bandon in 20 years. So there's a lot of players that try. But one day we were playing, and it was 70. And by the time 
we got from one hole to the next, it was 45 to 50. It was like a refrigerator door opened on the Pacific Ocean. I've never seen anything like it in my life. There was no rain. There was barely any clouds and we were freezing, you know, and, and uh, that's one experience that I I remember um, very well. The other experience is um, what's happening there right now for years, they've owned a piece of property and I'll give you a little preview of it. It's North of the Pacific dunes, which is the, the, uh, the, the most seaside of the, of the four courses there five really we'd go up there and they'd had greens in the ground and you were able to play this course with just a rustic kind of feel. And it was called Bally band and sheep ranch. And you'd pay $75 to be out there all day. Okay. And now they've finally broken ground and core and Crenshaw. It's, you know, it's bill core and oh, Ben yeah. Crenshaw who've done one of the courses there. They are going to be opening this course. I'm just saying, you're going to see this golf course. It's going to become, I'm going to say it's going to be in the top 20 in the world when it opens. I, I really feel like that piece of property would be that. And if that happens, then that must be the thing that twists somebody's arm to say, okay, it's time, make the reservation, get up there, because it, they're going to have a year or two, a honeymoon period where they're going to get really busy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think a lot of, you know, myself included, and a lot of people I know, it's on the list. It's just coming from the east coast i mean it's it's two full days it's a day out there it's a day back but uh yeah i gotta i gotta get that off the list i gotta get that done i gotta do it it could be cool Uh, stream song in florida is your your everyday beautiful you know very high close to bandon in terms of the way they laid out these courses on a former phosphorus mines and you can get there you know, it's in between Tampa, Florida, and and, uh, and Orlando, and a little south, as you well know. Oh, um, I've, I've been there. I, yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I don't. I, I got I got mixed feelings on Scream Song. <laughs> well, yeah, and and some people do because you know, Lynx golf when it's a hundred degrees out is a little different than the real Lynx golf that anybody that goes to Scotland and Ireland knows that. You know, they may not they may not do a little a lot of wearing shorts over there either. Yeah. Um, and I don't wear I don't wear shorts that much anyway. But when I see a guy wearing shorts when it's fifty or forty five degrees out, I always get a kick out of it. Yeah, those guys are those people are psychopaths. I don't I don't know how they do that. Either. <laughs> when I was in St Andrews, I see people wearing shorts. I'm like, what are you doing, man? I mean, yeah, not good. Um, this is kind of a you know you're like I said you're you're a you're right in the forefront of the amateur game. Uh, I want to ask you a couple questions, kind of your opinion of the game. Is there a need for a U.S. mid senior? Good question. I um, I would love to see it. I would love to see people be able to like shorten the gap between the time they're starting to get a little older and not be able to compete with somebody that's 25, you know, 27 years old and, yeah. and 55. So I'd actually like to see the age of senior golf get dropped to 50 and then maybe have a super senior category that's more like 60 to 75 or something like that. I just right. think that... Um, that it's too long of a wait to get to 55 um, champions tours 50 for the U S open senior open. So why not drop it down to 50? And then maybe, maybe that mid senior idea might be a good idea. 35 or 40 to 55, something like that. I, I, I think it's a great idea. Okay. Curious. I, I, I'm kind of in the same area. Cause I know a lot of guys that are excellent amateurs and it seems between the ages of like 40 and 50, they're kind of in a holding pattern, so to speak, or 40 and 55. So um, I guess we're, we are on the same page with that. Um, should a should the NCAA individual champion get an invite to the Masters? Wow, I think so. Yes, that's a tough one. It's seventy two hole metal play event with the best golfers anywhere. Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah. 
And let me ask you this one. The last amateur to win on the PGA Tour was Phil Mickelson. It was the 91 Northern Telecom. And then the last one to win on the European Tour was Shane Lowry. That's a little bit more recent. That's 2007 when he won the Irish Open. Is it more likely that we're going to see an amateur win a PGA Tour event again? Or because the depth of the talent at such a young age, is it's so deep. Or do you think we're farther away because these kids are turning pro soon, uh, so much earlier? Good point. And I think we are farther away for both of those reasons. And I think it's it's possible that we never see a, a, an amateur win on the, um, the PGA Tour. And the exemptions in make it also a factor. So there's so few people that are getting into PGA Tour events, whereas the reason that they contend sometimes and come in like Spencer Levine, I remember watching him at the U S open at Shinnecock in yeah. 13th place. I mean, that's high up on the list. So there are so many amateurs that can get into a U.S. open that it actually is just as possible that they could win a U.S. open, believe it or not. And, uh, but the web.com tour is so competitive that I would almost equate that not quite with Phil's achievement. Cause that, that was pretty remarkable, but I, I, you know, Harris English, I think won on the web.com tour and, there's somebody else out there that, that, that did. And those are amazing uh, when they can do that. Well, I want to I want to wrap it up, but I definitely want to to give. Uh, I want to ask you one final question about uh, about AmateurGolf.com. You've been doing this for nearly 20 years. You've covered numerous tournaments. You've hosted numerous tournaments. You provide this great resource for anyone that wants to to track uh, tournament results, plan their their playing schedule for for their summer. People get to meet each other at these events. I know it's going to be a tough one, but this isn't a fun, this isn't an easy podcast to be on. So what is the one thing that you are most proud of with AmateurGolf.com? It's not that hard. I, I think the, the thing I'm most proud of is the people that have worked with me that I've been lucky enough to either employ on a repeated basis or that they've gone on to, to other things. So I've had people take you know, media jobs with universities. I've had Sean Martin used to work for me, which if you, you know, oh, PGA yeah. tour.com, yeah. he's, he's going to be one of the foremost writers because of his breadth of knowledge. Uh, you know, I, I've never employed, uh, Jaime Diaz, but I've worked with Jaime Diaz, you know, on, on, he played in abandoned tournament with us one year. And the, you know, so it's the people you come in contact with when somebody asks you about a business, and I don't care if you run a gas station or if you run a Seven Eleven or if you run a, a, you know, a major corporation, your relationships are your number one asset, and I would I would be able to easily prove that, and and the, I think a lot of executives would agree with me, and your employees. And so, you know, we we brought Julie Williams on board, who used to be with um, with Golf Week, and and watching her during the Augusta National Women's Amateur on the Golf Channel as an amateur golf expert, I, I said to myself. It's great that I have somebody under my employment that's actually that considered an amateur golf expert. So it's, I know it's a long answer, no, but um, that's the relationship. One one word is relationships. It's all the relationships that that you know we built over twenty years. People actually like our website. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you're not going to use that as a tagline. Amateurgolf.com. People like us, so um, maybe, maybe. <laughs> all right, well, maybe get some more of those hats printed up. So. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I definitely want to mention the, the, the code again, BOTR. It's going to be an amateurgolf.com. All that information will be in the show notes here. So people listening uh, will get you squared away with that. Um, so, Pete, I definitely appreciate you joining us this week at the back of the range and uh, wish you all the best. Enjoy uh, enjoy the USAM. Thank you, Ben. I've really enjoyed being on the podcast, and let's do this again. And there you have it, another great episode here at the Back of the Range. Special thanks to Pete Lakowski for joining us this week. He is the founder of AmateurGolf.com. Great insight and great information about the amateur game. 
Remember, he gave you a coupon code, B-O-T-R. Go over to AmateurGolf.com and you get 90 days free access to the website. Don't need to put a credit card in. Just a nice thing that Pete did for everyone that's listening to the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Access to every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. And guess what? We'll see you again next week for another episode here at The Back of the Range.